reading of God's word from Luke 7, 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You may be seated. I've shared this story several times, um, and perhaps I've shared it with you, and if I have, I apologize for telling you it again, but it's a point, an important story for me, for the life of my church, but I think also for the life of the church in general. On September 4th, 1957, nine brave black children attempted to integrate Central High School in Little Rock. These brave children attempted to do this despite the fact that Orville Favis, the standing governor at the time, had said blood will run in the streets if the Negro children attempt to integrate Central High School. When these students approached the school, a seething white mob lined the streets to stare at them, yell at them, and do whatever they could to discourage them from entering the school. As the children approached the school, they were eventually turned away by the Arkansas National Guard. Children turned away by a National Guard holding weapons. I think you could argue that this was one of the worst walks, not only in the state of Arkansas, in the history of our state, but perhaps the United States. But eight of the nine children did not make this walk alone. Joining them was a white man named Dunbar Ogden. Ogden was the pastor of Central Presbyterian Church of Little Rock, an all-white congregation located on Arch and 19th Street on the south side of downtown. He had answered the plea of the civil rights leader Daisy Bates to join the children in their walk, and he did this uh, and his conscience was, was conflicted throughout the whole time. But he did it nevertheless. But his decision to walk in solidarity with his black neighbor, that is to love his neighbor, was too high a cost 
for Central Presbyterian Church. Because shortly thereafter, Ogden would be fired as the pastor of Central Presbyterian Church. The thinking in the minds of Central Presbyterian Church had to be something like this. How can we, an all-white congregation, continue forward with a, with a white pastor who loves the black people? Who will come to our church? How will we survive? Well, not long after Ogden was fired, the church would close its doors for the last time. It's now a Wikipedia page. And the beauty is, one of the things that I love about this story is that um, Central Presbyterian Church again exists, but God had to kill it and then resurrect it in the name of, of uh, Central Presbyterian Church in Little Rock. But it's a Wikipedia page. And what the church failed to realize is this. A church that fails to love is a church that fails to live. A church that fails to love is a church that fails to live. I think the truth of, it, of all of our churches, including Trinity Fellowship and now Central Presbyterian Church, is how do we avoid becoming a Wikipedia page? How do we make a difference? How do we love the community which God has placed us in? I guess you could say, how do we avoid becoming a dead church? A church with no life. A church that closes its door. How do we do this? How do we love? Well, one of the ways that we can love is we can guilt ourselves or shame ourselves into becoming a church that loves. We beat ourselves up so much. We've got to love, got to love, got to love, got to do this. We should be doing this. We should be doing that. We should have, should have, should have. And we should have all over ourselves. But this is not the way in which we become a church that loves and lives. No, the way we are to be a church that loves and lives is we first must experience the lavish and sacrificial love of our Savior Jesus Christ. We love, as 1 John 4.19 says, we love because Christ first loved us. Luke 7, 36-50 is a story with a few moving parts, but this morning, as we come before it, I want our focus to be on the three movements of Jesus' love in this passage. We will see that Jesus offers a warm welcome. We will see that Jesus offers a, a stern correction. And we will see that Jesus offers forgiveness. It is my desire that as we experience the love of Jesus from this passage, that we do indeed experience the warm welcome of Jesus, that we do heed Jesus' corrective call, and that we do receive the forgiveness that he offers to us in this place. That we are a church that not only experiences the love of God, but loves our neighbor and loves our God and lives. Well, let's dig in. If we are to be a church that loves and lives, we first must experience the welcome of Jesus. Shortly after Jesus reclines at Simon's table, a woman of the city comes to Jesus we know from various writings, ancient writings, that this type of de description of a woman probably meant that she was a woman who gave herself up uh, for money. When she gets to Jesus, she's so overcome with emotion that she begins to sob, and sob profusely that she, she is wetting Jesus' feet with her tears. Now, we don't, we, we don't really know exactly why she's weeping. Is she weeping because she's afraid? Is she weeping because of gratitude? It's hard to tell, but nevertheless, she is overcome with this, 
emotion. And she wants to show Jesus her love and her affection. And tears are coming down onto Jesus' feet. But she doesn't use a rag to wash Jesus' feet, as was the custom. When a traveler or a visitor would come into the house, you would wash their feet. She doesn't use a rag. She uses her hair. This is a cultural no-no at the time, something that was scandalous, especially to the Jewish um, conservative culture of the time. Women were to keep their hair up. Uh, it was, uh, to let your hair down was, was only a time for one's spouse, but she let her hair down, and she washed Jesus' feet with her hair. But it doesn't end there. She begins then to kiss Jesus' feet. She kisses them with great affection. Oh, how awkward would, would this be? Imagine yourself sitting at someone's table and someone weeping at your feet, washing your feet with their hair and then kissing your feet. One would expect a kind person to gently correct her and to, to be careful with her and say, no, 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 don't do this. But Jesus doesn't even do that. He welcomes her with her messiness, with her unculturally unsound practices. He welcomes her kissing his feet. He doesn't push away. To the religious leader, Simon at the time, the host of the party, this was so bizarre and so uh, unprofit-like that he begins to judge Jesus. He looks at Jesus and says, if this man were a prophet, he would know the type of woman who is kissing his feet. A sinner. He would have known. And perhaps the most beautiful picture of Jesus' welcome in this whole story is that after Jesus deals with Simon and tells him this story, he then turns toward the woman. You can see this. It's a strange thing. He turns toward the woman, but he speaks to Simon. It's as if Jesus is saying, Simon, you need to look and see what it means to love. You need to look first. Simon, I want you to look. And he's looking directly at the woman. He wants him to see who she really is. Not a woman of the city. Not an undignified individual. Not someone to be ignored. Not someone who's unworthy of love and affection. Not someone who's to be used and abused. Jesus is looking at this woman and teaching Simon, no, this is a woman who's worthy of my love and affection. And you need to look at her. It's a strange thing. But Jesus welcomes her. He defends her. It is a beautiful picture. I want to ask you this question. Have you ever experienced the welcome of Jesus as this woman has? Have you ever been welcomed into his presence and cared for when you thought you least deserved it? I mean, felt it deep in your heart. I mean, where it wraps your soul and you are so moved with emotion that tears begin to fall from your face. Have you felt it? I'm not saying that weeping is a normative experience in the, in the Christian life. I'm not saying that tears have to... But what is a normative experience is, is feeling in your heart of hearts the same thing that this woman felt. That I am welcomed in the presence of Jesus. That I am a person worthy of love despite my deserving. Have you felt it? 
Sadly, many in the church have never experienced such a welcome. To many, Jesus' welcome is not like the one described in this passage, but rather the welcome that Simon the Pharisee actually gives. One of judgment, condemnation, and difficult, difficult wait-and-see type mentality. We associate Jesus with Simon the Pharisee. Perfect example is what I've experienced in my Christian life. I mean, I've, I, this, this, was, this didn't happen long ago, but I remember I went like a few days without having read, read the Bible. And I felt this, this fear and this hesitancy to enter into the presence of God and offer prayers, prayers for God to move. Why? Because I hadn't done enough to merit the prayers that I was about to pray. I felt like I had to pretty myself up in order for God to hear my voice. It's because I picture Jesus like Simon the Pharisee. He's judging me. It's a wait and see type mentality. I have to show myself worthy in order for God to hear my prayers. Have you ever made a mistake? Have you ever been hesitant to go into the presence of God because of the way that you've lived? Hesitate not. Jesus does not wait for you to pretty yourself up or to be deserving of his presence for what you've done and what you've obeyed. He welcomes your messy and uncultured, bad self. And he welcomes you with grace and mercy and gentleness. If we're going to be a church that loves and lives, we must see and experience the welcome of Jesus. But that's not all. We need to heed Jesus' correction. We need to experience the welcome of Jesus. We need to heed Jesus' corrections. In our minds, the church, the religious, and the rule followers are the last people we'd expect Jesus to correct. But these are the very people that Jesus most often corrects in the gospel, Gospels. This is because, as C.S. Lewis has wrote, it's the dregs of society that are, that, are, that are not in danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. It is the proud, the avaricious, the self-righteous that are in that danger. I have no doubt that this is a church filled with Pharisees. I know that because I am a Pharisee. And I know what one looks like. And so I can say with full confidence that this is a church full of Pharisees. And because of that, we must heed Jesus' correction. Correction of Simon. Following the rather uncomfortable encounter with the woman of the city, we, are, we, we come into con contact with Jesus' interaction with Simon. Simon had gotten dinner together with Jesus to get a sense of who this religious leader was at the time. And we don't really know why Simon wanted to get with Jesus, but we can speculate, just like we could speculate before, that Simon was doing this to check out Jesus. He wanted to see, is this a man of God? Is he a man whom I can trust with the word of God? And quickly, when he sees this interaction between this woman of the city and Jesus, he dismisses Jesus immediately. <laughs> if this man were a prophet, he would know who was dealing with him. So Simon dismisses Jesus himself. And ironically, I love what Jesus does. Jesus knows exactly what Simon's thinking. You don't think I'm a prophet? Well, let me tell you. It's a really ironic thing. And Jesus then 
tells him a story. Verse 41, Jesus tells a story. If you will look there, a certain, this is what Jesus tells Simon. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, well, I suppose for the one whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus says, you have judged rightly. In this short illustration that Jesus tells Simon the Pharisee, he's trying to change Simon's religious paradigm. And you can see this in verse 44. He turns toward the woman like we mentioned earlier. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. You gave me no kiss, but she did. You anointed my head with oil. But here's the point that Jesus is trying to make. Verse 47. I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. The whole point of Jesus' illustration can be summarized in that last sentence. He who is forgiven little, loves little. You need not be a rocket scientist to know that Simon thought of himself as too good, not that bad, doing better than others, to judge this woman. He wasn't in that big of a debt because he was, he was, in, he was the religious leader of the day. But his life was defined by a general lovelessness. A lovelessness of neighbor and a lovelessness of God because he was too concerned with loving himself. This is the danger of all of us in the church. How do we avoid becoming self-righteous, self-loving like Simon? Well, we need to heed the correction of Jesus that he is offering to us in these verses. Use it as a diagnostic and feel the burn it creates, the uncomfortable uh, nature that it creates in our own minds. What, what do I mean by this? Let me ask you a question. Here's some diagnostic questions. How well are you loving? How well are you meeting the needs of your neighbors? Do, do you even know your neighbor's needs? I mean your next door neighbor. Do you know your next door neighbor's needs? Why? Why don't you know it? If you're a Christian businessman, are you working to make others prosper? Or are you making business well so that you prosper? Is your Christian life based on the criticism of other people? Do you find yourself criticizing other people, other churches, other denominations, the people in your very church? Or are you defined more by trying to understand those people? How? Well, are you loving? Let's try this diagnostic from a different angle. How often are you broken over your sin? How deep is your repentance? Are you willing to go to the deepest parts of your heart to understand why you do what you do? Because you're so broken by the fact that you continue to run from God. That you continue to, to disobey Him. And you say, Lord, I want to know why. And I want to root that out of my life. Are you vigorous in seeking forgiveness from Jesus or are you content in the life that you live thinking, I'm not that bad. I've done enough for this time. I'm not in that much need of forgiveness. My friends, Jesus says, the one who is forgiven little loves little. 
Look with me one last time at Jesus' brief illustration. There's one common denominator between the person who's owed 50 and 500 denarii. There's one thing in common between these both, both of these people. Both of them are in debt. Both of them need forgiveness. Both need it to be paid. As a church, it is vital that we heed Jesus' correction and use it as a diagnostic so that we can realize that we are no different than the woman of the city. That we are incapable of paying a debt like that. That we, just like the woman of the city, need to run to Jesus, throw ourselves down, and experience the warm welcome of Jesus. We need that. You see, if we're going to be a church that loves and lives, we must experience that welcome. We must heed the corrective uh, beauty of Jesus. But, but lastly, we must receive the forgiveness of Jesus. So lastly, the forgiveness of Jesus. Following Jesus' correction of Simon, Jesus addresses the woman one last time. Jesus looks to her and says simply, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is a radical statement, and to our eyes and minds, especially if you've been in the church for a long time, we're just like, of course Jesus forgives sins. But to the people who are sitting at, at this table with Jesus, it was one of the most provocative statements at the time. Because in their minds, the only person capable of offering forgiveness was God himself. God was the only one who had the authority to forgive sins. And so they say this, who is this who even forgives sins? Who is this who even forgives sins? End of verse 49. Yeah, this, is a, this is a really neat statement in the, in the book of Luke because I think one of the things that Luke wants you to know is he wants you in the midst of this to wrestle with this question, who is this who even forgives sins? Who is this who forgives sins? I would say it's actually one of Luke's primary theological themes in the, his book that he writes. The forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. In Luke 1, he has Zechariah, the, 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 the priest of Israel, proclaiming that Jesus is going to be the one who forgives sins. In Luke 5, he mentions uh, Jesus being the one who has, has the ability to forgive sins when the paralytic is lowered down through the roof. And Jesus doesn't heal him first, he forgives him first. In Luke 7, we encounter this situation with Jesus and the woman of the city forgiving her sins. And at the end of Luke, we see the last words that Jesus says is this. Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. One of the things that Luke wants us to wrestle with is, who is this who forgives sins? It is Jesus Christ, the one who has the authority to forgive sins. For those of us who have been Christians for some period of time, it, begin, it can become easy for us to glance over this significance of Jesus' authority. Here's the illustration that I would say. Perhaps one of you were to commit tax fraud. You cut corners, you hide income, maybe you embezzled money. You do all sorts of things like that. And you get convicted of this, or your, 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 your spirit convicts you. And you were to come to me, throw yourselves at my foot, feet, and say, forgive me, pastor, forgive me. The truth is I have no authority to forgive your tax fraud. It would be weird. Why? I have no authority to forgive you your tax fraud. And in the minds of their in the eyes of the people and their minds of the people that were sitting at the table with Jesus, this is how they thought of this. He has no authority to do this. But Luke is telling us, no, Jesus 
has the authority to forgive sins. Cast yourself at his feet. But that's not all he wants you to do. That Jesus has the authority to forgive. He wants you to recognize and see that not only does Jesus have the authority to forgive sins, that Jesus cancels the debt of your sins. Again, think with me with the debtor illustration that Jesus says to Simon. I mean, it's a simple illustration. One's owed 50, one's owed 500 denarii. And he says the moneylender cancels the debt of both. Who's the one that pays for that? Who's the one that pays for the, the, the people who couldn't pay it back? It's the moneylender. He paid 50, he paid 500. It cost the moneylender 550 denarii to cancel the debt of both. And what Jesus is saying in this is, not only do I have the authority to forgive sins, I'm the one who forgives sins and pays the debt. And Jesus wants us to recognize this. Not only do I forgive sins, but I pay the debt. I'm the one who pays for your sins. And we see this most beautifully on the cross. As Jesus offered his life for your life. The payment required for all of us. The righteous for the unrighteous. That the unrighteous might have life. My friends, are you like Simon the Pharisee? Judgmental, stubborn, loveless. Well, the forgiveness of Jesus has been freely extended to you. Will you receive it? Are you like the woman of the city, lost, broken, ashamed, constantly running after the things of this world to find life? The forgiveness of Jesus is freely extended to you. Will you receive it? Don't work another hour trying to earn the forgiveness of Jesus. Don't fret another moment considering your standing with the authority, with God himself. Open up your heart and run to Jesus. He is the one who has the authority to forgive sins, and he is the one who has forgiven sins. Receive such forgiveness. For those who are forgiven much, love much. Philip Yancey, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, recounts a haunting story told to him by a friend who worked with the Down and Out in Chicago. Yancey writes, A woman of the city had come to my friend in wretched straits, homeless, her health failing, and unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Her eyes awash with tears, she confessed that she had been renting out her daughter, for, who was two years old, in order to support her drug habit. And upon hearing this, Yancey's friend sat in silence, not knowing what to say. At last, this friend asked this woman if she thought about going to the church for help. And with a look of pure astonishment, this woman responded, Church? Church? Why would I ever go there? They just make me feel worse than I already do. A church that fails to love, a church that fails to love the broken and the down and out is a church that fails to live. And the solution to fixing this problem is not working harder or shaming yourselves or guilting yourselves to love more. It is in experiencing the welcome of Jesus, heeding his corrective call, and re receiving his forgiveness by faith. If we do this, my friends, we cannot help but love. If we do this, my friends, we will have broken and messy people coming to the church because this is a place, the church, not this is a church where Jesus is felt 
and experience and the forgiveness of Jesus extends to them. I pray that this is a place that knows the welcome of Jesus. I pray that this is a place that heeds Jesus' corrective call. I pray that this is a place that understands and receives the forgiveness of Jesus. That you might not only love, but that you live. May God answer that prayer. Amen. If you will, will you, will you um, join me in prayer? Are you, are you distant from God? Why don't you close your eyes right now? I want you to close your eyes. Are you distant from God? Do you feel unworthy to come into his presence? Close your eyes and join me in prayer. I know this sounds maybe a little too spiritual and too emotional, but I just imagine yourself crawling up into your father's lap. I want you to imagine feeling his loving stare and welcome. Why do you fear? Do you not know that Jesus welcomes sinners into his presence. Let's pray. Jesus, we throw ourselves towards you knowing that you are the one who gladly welcomes sinners into your presence. Who we also rejoice knowing that you not only that you welcome us, but that you extend your forgiveness to us. Blessed Savior who is like you, who welcomes undeserving people into your presence and gives your forgiveness. Who in the world can offer such a blessed gift as this? Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for such blessed grace. But Jesus, we are so prone to judgment in ourselves. We are prone to consider ourselves rather than others. We understand that it's hard to love sacrificially, that it's hard to give up control. So we ask and pray, Lord, that you would show us our sin and that you would bring us right back to this place. Show us your forgiveness. Constantly remind us of the beauty of your cross and, and move us in love. Oh, we come to you proclaiming your promises that, 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 that you have said that you will give life as we move to you. Establish Trinity Fellowship, establish Covenant Little Rock, establish Central Prez as places of beauty and truth and welcome and forgiveness. Establish them as churches that love and live. We pray this in your loving and holy name.